0: this week on the defense scoop podcast from the scoop news group the future of the climate battle for dod and the inspector general challenge for the entire department it's wednesday october 19th 2022 welcome to the defense scoop podcast Every week, you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Office of the Secretary of Defense has its own chief information officer and a big AI move for the Army. Mark Pomerleau and Brandy Vincent are reporters for Defense Scoop. Uh, Brandy, I start with you. We miss both of you, all three of you, John Harper included, as you were at AUSA last week. The Office of the Secretary of Defense has a CIO for the first time In a time when the department seems to be trying to consolidate billets, what's the reasoning behind establishing a CIO office specifically for OSD? Welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Francis, and thanks for having us. I would say that this move to establish a CIO with an OSD builds on many moves that Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks has been making um, throughout her tenure to sort of scale technological capabilities, help scale them across DOD. Um, what happened was last week, they established a brand new directorate, uh the information management and technology or im directorate within the office of the secretary of defense and um, expanded the role of the director of administration and management um, to also be the first CIO of all OSD components. It was not made immediately clear uh, by OSD um, why and how this came to be, but in a memo, Uh, Hicks said that cost-driven IT consolidation efforts, increased demand uh, due to remote work and rapid advancements in technology have highlighted this need for strengthened oversight. Um, And it was reported a little bit later on um, that uh, this was also sort of which was sort of my inclination, inspired by uh, an assessment that had been unfolding over the summer in DoD about um, its IT sort of landscape. Danielle Metz was uh, leading that study and she's a longtime Pentagon IT executive. Um, and now she's going to be the director of that new im function. Um, function. And so I think this is just another waypoint in a broader and bigger push uh by Hicks and Pentagon leadership to um sort of coordinate and uh consolidate and sort of streamline um a lot of those data centered uh efforts. Um and I think it's gonna be uh just 're We're, we're going to see more of this and more memos coming forward.
0: It's a fascinating structure to me, Brandy, because the Director of Administration and Management job is known as the mayor of the Pentagon. He basically oversees the operation of the Pentagon. And that person right now is Mike Donnelly, who's the former secretary of the Air Force, held a number of other jobs in DOD over the years. And Secretary Hicks writes, the dam and m will lead engagement between OSD components and IT service providers, develop and advocate for application and system modernization, and serve as the cyber risk manager for cybersecurity-related issues in OSD. Now, Mike Donnelly doesn't have an IT background per se, but it strikes me that as I read your report, it looks like Mike is going to be kind of the COO, the chief operating officer of the IT operation, and Danielle is going to be the implementer, the person who gets the IT nuts and bolts done. You think that's a fair read on how this will will probably shake out, Brandy?
1: I think so, Francis, but you know, at this point, to me, there are so many things that are unclear um, and uh, raise a lot of questions about maybe more difficulties uh, caused by bureaucracy. For instance, um, this role is obviously different than DOD's overall CIO, John Sherman, um, and he's the principal advisor to the Secretary of Defense on critical IT functions, but it's still not clear really how this OSD CIO is going to work with Sherman. Um, In another memorandum recently, Hicks uh, called for every single OSD component to name a data officer. She gave them 30 days. Uh, and that deadline was this weekend. I reported yesterday um, that her team has still not gotten a full list of those new data officers. It's also unclear how those data officers will work with the OSD CIO. Um, and so I think that there there's open questions that remain, but it's very clear that they're trying to uh, consolidate and sort of make sense of uh, different sort of um, siloed tech elements to make uh, OSD especially a more kind of data-centric and data-driven enterprise.
0: Well, I look forward to you helping to make those things more clear, the things that you designated as unclear as time goes on. Mark, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, you write about the Army transitioning to artificial intelligence algorithms through its technology gateway. What is the Army's technology gateway and what function is it serving for the Army? Welcome.
2: Sure. Thanks, Francis. Uh, So the technology gateway is part of the Army's Project Convergence experiment. Uh, I'm sure listeners are very familiar with Project Convergence um, as the Army's contribution to the Pentagon's JADC2 initiative. Um, And so essentially, Project Convergence is a a huge experiment, right? Um, It's inviting the the joint services and this year, for the first time, multinational partners to to come and, in an operational scenario, seek to integrate their technologies, um, communication systems, uh, kinetic systems, and see how they all work together uh, in, in a realistic scenario. And uh, for the first time this year, they've set up this uh, technology gateway. Um, What uh, officials realized was they wanted essentially a pathway ahead of the experiment for members of industry to be able to uh, come in and actually plug their systems in and and essentially solve some problems for the Army. Um, The goal being obviously uh, to get these things squared away before the exercise, but also Uh, help the Army inform uh, future requirements, future systems, future needs, and um, eventually maybe even transition some of these into programs of record that they could actually use um, in, in future conflict.
0: Is this a building block on work that the Army's already been doing regarding AI, or is this something that you had not learned about before this information came out?
2: Sure. So I I think it's it's part of a of a pattern. Um, now the this this gateway is is much bigger than than just AI. Um, some of the technologies that they've featured um, are counter UAS. Some have have focused on um, extending the range of their network. Um, it just so happens that that a couple of these algorithms that they tested recently were mature enough to, um, to transition into an actual program of record. But uh, my understanding is that um, they've really uh, kind of put out to industry a lot of problems that they've had and said, you know, here, come bring your systems, see if they integrate, see if they work, if they do great, if they don't go back to the drawing board. And, and one of the examples that officials gave is um, they've seen a lot of increased collaboration with the company. Themselves leaving the army out, um, officials uh, told reporters yesterday that there were some recent examples um, where members of industry encountered some issues and uh, you know talks talked amongst themselves. So, tried to see if they could solve it and went back to the army and said, you know, can your test center support this? So they've, they've kind of uh, an unintended uh, benefit to this has just been increased collaboration with industry, which um, you know, Oh, by the way, they've actually kind of come here on their own dime um, to test these technologies. Um, I I don't believe that they're actually getting any funding from the army specifically to bring some of their, their technologies and and, um, internal investments to this
0: uh, event. The piece of that that I think is the most interesting too, Mark, is the idea that these companies are collaborating amongst themselves without the Army's input, guidance, leadership, because that's kind of the nirvana, I would think, for what the Army wants to build. They'd like to have this ecosystem of innovation that exists with or without them that they don't have to ask questions of necessarily all the time.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, Part of this modernization effort is is being able to, to go faster. I mean, they want... Um, to be able to insert technologies that are mature enough to actually go onto the battlefield. Um, you know, the army isn't going to invest its own money anymore Um to develop these technologies. We've seen the Army say, we need to go fast. And, you know, for industry, that means that you need to start bringing technologies um, that have high technology readiness levels that are ready to go kind of on, on day one. So, um, yeah, this seems to be kind of a, a a good news story for the way that the Army is, is going in terms of its modernization priorities and efforts.
0: It's a great report. It's up at DefenseScoop.com right now. Mark, what are you uh, looking forward to in the next week or so? Sure. So
2: uh, next week is the annual uh, Association of Old Crows Symposium. Uh, The Association of Old Crows is is really the the main um, international body for electromagnetic spectrum operations advocacy. Um, so there'll be a lot of high-profile speakers from across OSD and the services talking a lot about um, uh, electronic warfare, electromagnetic spectrum operations, um, networking and uh and, and supply chain issues. So um should be a really interesting conference with a lot of interesting information coming out of it
0: and the coolest name of any of advocacy group in washington i think brandy what's on your radar screen for the next week or so
1: on Thursday at our big uh, Cyber Talks event that Cyberscoop is putting on, we have a variety of Defense Department officials, including um, Katie Savage, who is now in the CDAO, and Danielle Metz, who we were just speaking about, who's taken on uh, new responsibilities. So looking forward to hearing from them about that.
0: Brandy, Mark, terrific reporting from both of you as always, uh, and I appreciate you joining me today.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Francis.
0: You can read more about their stories and lots more at defensescoop.com. The Air Force's new Climate Action Plan completes the triad of plans for the military departments. The Army and Navy published their plans earlier in 2022. John Conger is Senior Advisor for the Council on Strategic Risks. He's former Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Energy Installations and Environment. John, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. You wrote a piece about this that I saw on LinkedIn, and I, you describe very well what the differences and similarities are among these plans that the services have released. Let's start with the similarities. What are the common threads that you see in the Army, Navy, and Air Force climate st- uh, strategy plans? Welcome.
3: Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. The uh, I think the three uh, plans have the, the most important commonality between the three plans is that they are driven by mission. They are not in spite of mission. They are all recognize the fact that their primary job is to defend the country, to perform their military missions. And because of climate change, it's gonna be harder. And so all of these plans are thinking through how do they continue to do their job in spite of climate change? And so that's a very important uh, piece of the puzzle. Um, They also uh, all uh, tie themselves to uh, White House goals for reducing carbon emissions, for increasing resilience and so on and so forth. And so the specific metrics they have uh, tie back to those. And so they are consistent in that context. They don't go off. There are some uh, individually developed ones, but they, they all do. Uh, sort of echo the, the central goals as well.
0: Uh, one thing that you write about in here is something that anybody that follows the defense department for more than about five seconds realizes. And that is that there is an intense competition among the services. And you allude to that here. How was that helpful in your view to get each of these plans on the table?
3: So I, I think uh, in order to understand the full context for this, it's important to go back, uh, and recall the Obama administration when the Navy and Secretary Mavis uh, were clear leaders in the conversation on climate. They pushed forward faster and harder than the other services um, and that was noted. Uh, Some critics, some uh, folks praised them, but that, that was nonetheless the case. This administration was very interesting. The army stepped forward first. Uh, the before any uh, politicals were in place in the installations and environment offices and the, the offices that oversee climate change, the army civilians started working on a plan and they had their plan done uh, well before the other services. And, and they uh, the politicals that came in to the army sort of took the draft that was there and and amped it up and clearly put their mark on it. And it is it is interesting to see just the the embrace on climate resilience that the Army has taken and the aggress- aggressive uh, approach and um, ambitious, I would say, uh, that, they, that they've pursued. So so the Army is, is clearly uh, in the front on all of this. Uh, the Navy got their plan done a few months later uh, and that left the Air Force. And then the Air Force took a little while to, to get going um you know, I, I would note that uh, you know Secretary Kendall, who I used to work for, uh, has not put a big emphasis on climate change, uh, not like Secretary Warmouth and Secretary Del Toro. Um, but that said, if you look, and he has said over and over again, his priorities are China, China, and China. And I understand where he's coming from. So if you read the Air Force plan, it says, my priority is still China. But I have to look at how do I deal with China in the context of a world that is changed by climate change? How do I keep doing what I want to do despite these other changes? And so this becomes a part of that overall plan rather than a distraction.
0: Yeah, it, you uh, quote, I think, one of the most uh, important lines from the Air Force's strategy, and that is. Uh, the top climate goal is, as you quote, maintain air and space dominance in the face of climate risk. I mean, it's it's tied together as explicitly as I think it possibly could be.
3: Yes. And so in that context, I mean, the Air Force uh, in recent years has taken more body blows from climate change than the other services. Uh, the flattening of Tyndall Air Force Base, uh, the flooding of Offutt Air Force Base. There have been, you know, the, there have been wildfires at Air Force bases in in California. That they have had more uh, significant events that they've had to deal with in this context in recent years than than the other services. They dodged a, a bullet recently with Hurricane Ian because uh, it was headed straight for MacDill Air Force Base uh, and then sort of came into Florida a little bit farther south. So so the Air Force. Um, has this overarching context of of the need for resilience and the need to deal with climate risk. Uh, But it's because they want to be able to perform their primary mission. Uh, In all of these cases, and I think this is true for all the services, this issue becomes more about protecting uh, your mission from the environment than protecting the environment. And and so that's, that's an important context to think through in that.
0: Regarding the differences that you saw in these plans, you write, the military departments use different categories to group their objectives. Within these categories, the Army listed 29 specific objectives. The Air Force included 19. The Navy didn't list objectives but promises to issue follow-on implementation plans. What's significant there? What jumped out at you as you analyzed those three plans for the differences, John?
3: Sure. It's about the level of detail that they provided. Um, what you know in as we look at the Biden administration and how it has approached climate change, um, there have been a lot of good words said. Right, there's a lot of leadership projections, but then it's about okay, but what are you going to do about it? How do you turn plans into action? Well, if you look at the detail and the granularity in some of these plans, the more detail um, certainly implies more thought being put into it and and, and more effort. The Army. You know, it's funny, it, the, I put out this uh, assessment, and almost immediately after it, uh, the Army came out with an implementation plan with, you know, for each of its objectives, multiple metrics and multiple tasks that they are looking to do. So it's even more than that 29. They, they have delved into detail and assignments and who's going to have to do what by what year. Um, it, it, it was a very impressive amount of work. The Navy's working on that. Ah, uh, the Air Force put in its near-term metrics within its overall plan, and uh, but it's just they have fewer uh, that, that that they are including and measuring against. And in some respects, you know, that's a that's an important strategy too because uh, if everything is a priority, then nothing's a priority. So if you overwhelm the folks who have to do the work, they're not going to get anything done. And so and tactically, uh, you, you might want to make it a little bit, um, uh, you know, targeted. In that
0: context, are there uh, technologies? Are there goals? Are there commitments? Anything like that that you see among these three plans that struck you as I didn't expect to see that? I don't know if they can do that. It's going to take a concerted effort to hit that mark. Anything like that, John?
3: Sure, but I think that that those kinds of the ones that they do include uh, tend to be farther out. Um, I think that it's probably the case that the very ambitious uh, goals from the White House and the very ambitious goals in these plans uh, are going to be hard. Uh, if it was easy, then it wouldn't be as noteworthy. Uh, but they are all looking to, be, uh, to have their electricity uh, provided as carbon-free electricity by 2030. That's a pretty short time frame. I don't know if the grid is going to have enough carbon-free electricity to provide it to all of them by then. They may, but but that's going to be its own challenge. But if you look farther out and you think about technology, the Army uh, has a goal by 2050 to have uh, tactical vehicles electrified uh, in that time frame. And they acknowledge that the technology, to, if we were to try to do that today, we wouldn't be able to do it. But, you know, that's 30 years from now and in 30 years people invent a lot of things and the in- innovation engine and the ingenuity uh of of the folks that work for the defense department and for the country uh, across the board uh, there 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 are certainly opportunities to move in that direction so are we going to have uh, you know electric tanks i don't know but that seems uh, like a stretch to me but uh, but who knows because people invent lots of stuff uh, right now, they're moving to hybrids because they know they can do that. They know they're going to save 20 to 25 percent on their fuel use. They're going to save on logistics. There's, uh, and I've heard it characterized as a hybrid imperative. There is no reason not to do this. Uh, but, but going full electric, you're going to have to to invent a whole new logistics system, just like we're encountering in the U.S. with not enough charging stations. Um, they're going to have to figure. You know, they figured out how to deliver fuel to the battlefield. How are you going to deliver electricity to the battlefield? Uh, that's that's something they're going to have to think through, and figure out uh, whether that's worth it and what additional advantages you get. the The other piece of that, though, is that if we if we figure it out and we have sort of evolved to directed energy weapons, um, if you have that kind of power on the battlefield, you're going to have additional capability for some of those more. Uh, sophisticated uh, weapon
0: system. One thing that you can't do with uh, a fossil fuel driven um, vehicle is you can't generate the, the power for it on the battlefield. It has to be delivered to the battlefield. And with renewables, the possibility exists, as you say, the horizon is pretty far out to be able to do it, but the generation potential on the battlefield exists that doesn't exist in the environment that we live in now. I mean, and, and I talked to any number of folks in uh, DLA and other organizations that talked about the logistical challenges of getting juice to the battlefield um, in Afghanistan in particular.
3: We are already leveraging the advantages of using solar in contingency bases, And that reduces the amount of fuel you have to deliver to the front lines. Uh, it puts fewer people at risk. And uh, not only that, but you are uh, operating more quietly and more efficiently uh, when, when you do that. So, so there are tactical advantages to solar and contingency basis. Uh, if you can translate that to larger vehicles, I'm not, I'm not gonna go there right now, but already they are, uh, they are uh, sort of reaping the benefits uh, of, of using renewables uh, on contingency locations
0: and we certainly saw a lot of hybrids on the florida usa last week too a lot of discussion around that as well john conger thanks very much for joining me i appreciate your time
3: oh it's my pleasure
0: you can find a link to John's analysis of the climate plans in today's show notes at defense defensescooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Defense Scoop podcast. A number of DOD leaders are coming to Cyber Talks Thursday. It's happening at the Waldorf Astoria in downtown DC. You can find a link to see the agenda and register in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. investigators in Defense Department Inspector General offices may not have the skills they need to do their jobs. Part of the problem may be numbers. Kristen Kosalek is Director of Financial Management and Assurance at the Government Accountability Office. Kristen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What did you look at as you examined the offices of Inspector General across the services and how they interact with each other? Welcome.
4: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, as part of this review, we looked at the various military service and command inspector general offices across the Department of Defense. And I can give a little bit of background on those offices because they are a little bit different than what folks think of maybe as the Department of Defense inspector general. And so these are offices that are established outside of the Inspector General Act they are established through other statutory requirements or administratively within the organizations. And so there are four military service inspector generals, there are over 390 command inspector general offices, and there are 11 combatant command inspector general offices. And so this review really focused on those other than the federal agency IG offices, they looked at these other offices. And we really focused on how they are set up to conduct administrative investigations, and do they have the right policies, procedures in place, training, are the folks trained who are doing these um, investigations.
0: Someone who's followed these issues from the outside, as I have over the years, would suspect that each one of these offices pretty much has its own kind of ad hoc way of reaching whatever end state it's supposed to reach. Is that what you found?
4: That's absolutely right. But we did find So certainly, each organization does set up their policies, procedures, training to best fit their needs. These offices are of all different sizes, and so some, you know, the military service could be quite large, and then some of the command offices can be just a few people. So it does vary as to how they how they set up their organizations. But we did find that really across the board, they do have um, policies and procedures in place to set themselves up to conduct these investigations well. The one issue we did find um, that we do have uh, recommendations about relates to how they are set up related to supporting their independence. And so, as I mentioned, they are established a little bit differently um, outside of the IGAC, so they don't have that structural independence. They The inspector generals are often appointed by the secretary or by the commander. And so it's important that they still, despite that, have some level of independence that folks feel they can come to them and and get a a fair, independent investigation. And so we did find in some instances, their policies were not explicit as to their independent authority to open an investigation when they felt that was the right thing to do. In some cases, um, there is language that would suggest they need to get permission from the head of the organization before doing that. And so we would recommend you know, that if that were the case, that in, in a situation where they were denied the, the authority to go ahead and start an investigation, that that be elevated um, to a, a service ID above them um, to, to make sure that was the right thing. We did find that um, the folks we talked to are not really aware of instances where an office has been denied the authority to start an investigation, but having that in their policies consistently, and like you said, um, that the ability to have some differences in your policies can create these opportunities for things to, to not be established as well as you might like.
0: Another element of the independence that you cite is the option that uh, a command IG has to elevate an investigation to the service IG. Yes, but it didn't look like you found that that was necessarily an option that everybody was aware that they had, Kristen.
4: Correct. It's not necessarily in the policies and procedures as a requirement to elevate it, and so our suggestion would be, if you are denied the um, the authority to to start the investigation, that you there would be a requirement to elevate it, and at that point, then the service IG who would have the authority to open investigation could do so if they felt that was the right path. In many instances. An IG investigation is not the right path. Some of the issues that come to these offices, you know, are best handled by the by command management, by service management, by other offices, either inside or outside the Department of Defense. So we actually found that more than 90% of the issues that come to these offices do get referred to other places. And, and that's absolutely the right thing to do in many cases. You know, these offices are not going to handle criminal investigations, things like that. So to the extent that an IG investigation is not appropriate, it's appropriate that they get referred. But to the extent that an office did think they should be starting an investigation and, and were denied that, um, having a requirement to elevate that, um, in our opinion, would be the right thing to
0: do. One of the ongoing themes of just about every conversation I have on this program recently, it seems, is people, Kristen. What did you find as far as how you looked at, or what, what did you find when you looked at how the IG offices hire people, how they train them, And not just training during onboarding, but training throughout uh, one's career in an IG office.
4: Yeah, that was an important, another important area that we looked at was how they um, train their people, how they hire and train. And so what we found is that almost across the board, there was a pretty good initial onboard training process that folks went to. And we found that there is a mix of people that work in these offices. Some are military, some are civilian. So they have some folks that are there, you know, maybe five, 20 years, but then they have military folks who rotate in and out and are maybe there three to five. And so they could get a good initial training, but we found that having requirements for ongoing training is where they were lacking. Most of the offices we looked at did offer ongoing training, but they didn't necessarily have a mechanism to um, ensure that people were actually taking it and have a tracking mechanism to measure and be able to look across their employees and see um, how many people were taking advantage of that. And like I said, some of these offices are pretty small and so may not conduct investigations on a recurring basis such that they'd have continuing on the job training. That's why this having some sort of classroom type training, if you will, can be really important so that to the extent they do come across an instance where they need to start an investigation, they would be up to speed. They would be able to do that quickly, as opposed to having to, to look for the right resources to, to do that. If they kept their folks trained with the skills, knowledge ability that they need to be able to start an investigation as that might come to fruition, um, that's what we recommend.
0: It strikes me too. I mean, you address that idea of reps in, in the uh, in the work that you did here. Um, many of the selected IGs don't regularly conduct administrative investigations. May not be able to maintain proficiencies through regular conduct of investigations. Is there a resource now that you found anywhere in DoD that those organizations can send their people for training or obtain training when they don't have a big enough size or a big enough volume to be able to do it on their own?
4: Yeah, certainly they can. They can work with their other with the service IGs or with the larger offices. Um, there, there definitely are opportunities that they can leverage um, ongoing training. So I don't think it's for a lack of um, training being available. I think I think it is available, and I think in some cases people are taking advantage of it. They just aren't able to uh, document that, assure themselves, um, and and I think that's something that the management of these organizations would want to make sure that they have a handle on who has taken. Um, what training and, and who's up to speed on, on the various areas.
0: I want to go back to some of the numbers that you gave at the beginning to think about that idea of interaction and how these offices talk to each other. Because, I you know, DOD, of course, has the reputation for its silos of excellence. And it strikes me, four military services, 390-plus command-level IGs, 11 combatant command IGs. What's the network look like, Kristen? Is there an established um, kind of... Council or, or just some network that these organizations communicate with each other and share information share best practices and all of those kinds of things
4: Certainly within the individual services the service IGs do work definitely with the command IGs in their service so there definitely is that is that network in place um, that they can can have some oversight and leverage the um, resources that are available in the other IG offices. So yes, I do think they um, do work together to leverage that in this case.
0: Yes. All right. Seven recommendations that you and your colleagues make, uh, and we've talked about a couple of them already. What are the other ones that we haven't covered that really are important to improve the way that these offices work, especially I, I imagine regarding the independence issue that we talked about a few minutes ago?
4: Right. So really what we are recommending is that to the extent Um, there is not something in the policy that would require the office to elevate um, a, a denial, if you will, to initiate an investigation, that that be elevated to the next level. So if it was a command IG, they could elevate it to the service IG. In some instances, if it's a combatant command, that could be elevated to the DOD IG. So our recommendation is really to have that in a policy, that that would be a requirement to be elevated. It wouldn't just be you have the opportunity to do that and you can do it. It's a requirement and it's in the policy. And like you said, to the extent folks aren't aware of that, of that path forward, you know, that's documented right there. And, and they can take advantage of that. And then secondly, it does relate to the training. And so recommending, in addition to having your onboarding training, having a requirement or, or some mechanism in place to um, have ongoing training for folks really to match Whatever the knowledge, skills, abilities are for those individuals, we don't try not to be too prescriptive as to what that training might be because, it, it, like I said, the offices vary. They're going to have different needs. So really making sure you have a training program in place through the life cycle of the employee to, to make sure they're up to speed on what they need to know and then having a mechanism to track that just so that the management of that organization can have a view as, as to what's going on, what training the folks have had if an investigation comes in, who are the right folks to put on the various um, bodies of work.
0: And with that, those resources in place, as you discussed a short time ago, it sounds like that's a structural tactical issue and and not a broad strategic uh, thing that somebody has to go figure out. Correct. Kristen, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me today.
4: Thanks so much, Francis. Take care.
0: You can find a link to Kristen's work in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. The Defense Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every week on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every week, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop podcast returns next Wednesday. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.